Welcome to Icons in the Making. I'm your host, Heather Stern, CMO at Lippincott, the creative consultancy behind some of the world's best brands. Join me as I sit down with the leaders of today's most influential brands. You'll hear stories of transformation and walk away with a new perspective on what it means to be an icon. This is Icons in the Making. Today's guest is Joanna Pena Bickley. And to be honest, I struggled with the best way to introduce her given her multidisciplinary expertise, her groundbreaking work, and her long and very well-deserved list of accolades. She's a pioneering design technologist, one of Fortune's most powerful women, a former global chief creative officer at IBM, former head of research and design for Alexa devices at Amazon, fierce advocate for gender equity, inclusion, and education, creator of the first banking app on the Apple Watch, and now director of product design at Uber Eats, where she's reimagining what mobility means for the brand. She's a lifelong learner on a mission to create market-making experiences, platforms, and devices for our connected world. So without further ado, welcome to the incomparable Joanna Pena Bickley. Heather, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here and with your listeners. So there's a lot we're going to cover today, but you know, maybe we start talking through your relatively new role at Uber. You've said there's never been a more exciting time to innovate within the Uber technology sandbox. So tell me what attracted you to the role and, and what your vision is as much as you can say without revealing too much to the audience. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I have always had a love since I was a little girl around mobility. How do I get things from A to B? Things, people, services, and really imagining that there might be an evolution of it. One of the many reasons I joined Uber, we are at a very important inflection point in the world. I don't think just in our country, but in the world. And we're amidst this fourth industrial revolution that in, in spite of the pandemic, that hasn't changed. And so it's such a pleasure to come onto a team that has taken the pandemic as an opportunity mm-hmm. to really enforce that local connection that people have when it comes to delivery of goods and services. Things like food delivery actually became essential services during the pandemic, and that hasn't changed. If you think about every global industrial revolution, right, is is actually met by three kind of really important parts of the revolution. The first one is a reimagination or inventions in energy. Energy is so much of what we do, but we're actually reimagining things like the grid. We're also in the place of reimagining communications. In my last role at Amazon, I got to reimagine what the connected home and the connected car and kind of connected life got to be like, right? Utilizing that intelligence. So the idea around this reimagination starts with the foundation of the Internet of Things and artificial intelligence. And then... The next part is mobility, moving from just connection to electrification, moving from electrification to autonomous, right? They're highly interdependent, but thinking about new modes of mobility and not just mobility of people. And so things like delivery and pickup and the new ways that we move goods and services around the planet is actually a really exciting problem space. Obviously, I'm imagining you are an Uber customer and an Uber Eats customer prior to this role. So much opportunity, so many forces at play. 
You come into this really exciting space. You're inheriting some things, but I imagine as the pioneer that you are, you're really trying to set the stage for where are we trying to get to? So what does that look like? So I think one of the most important things is coming into what feels like a family. Really an honor to get to know the people. Because inevitably, all of these trends require people, Mm -hmm. right? Require the dedication, the idea, and the respect of the people that came before you and got the company to this point. And I think for me, when you start from, this is a very human-centered conversation about design. If you don't love people, you shouldn't be in design. And if you don't love people, you really shouldn't be in design management. (laughs) (laughs) And so a big part of that is getting to know people at a macro level, right? Kind of the organization, right? But one of my favorite things to do in kind of the early days, and I continue to do this today, is I have met with and will continue to meet every person on my team. Because as a leader, I think it's fundamental to know people. It's true, like human-centered management, right? Which I think is almost something that we don't think enough about. I mean, of course, we're encouraging people to bring their full selves and all of that. But really taking a fresh look at that, I imagine, is it ends up creating an environment where people can really deliver their best and be their best. That's right. Amidst every great industrial revolution comes social change and all the Mm -hmm. things that, right? We're also in a worker revolution. In the United States right now, there are two open design roles for every one designer looking. Yeah. So we're in probably one of the mo- historic, most competitive times for design talent. In order for you to attract, retain, and turn that design talent into enthusiastic leaders and evangelists of the method, right, becomes your first and foremost goal as an organizational leader. And sometimes that is taking an assessment of where most organizations are. I talk with so many of my peers across the board. The word that comes back is change fatigue. And I often hear it from organizations that never envision themselves as an iterative product. It's interesting to me that a lot of the born digital organizations are faring better than some of our more traditional organizations because when you are amidst this, we should always be looking to update our systems, our mechanisms, our processes, becoming better and better as we go, as opposed to one of, I think, Jenny Rometty's, uh, who was the former CEO of IBM, had the pleasure of working with her and being influenced by her, would say, one of the worst things that can happen in a technology company as you kind of rest on your laurels, that you protect the past. Mm. Because when you're protecting the past, you're actually being very short-sighted about what the future is. Technology is about the future and ownership of the future. And in order for you to own the future, you have to come to the table understanding that it is incumbent upon everybody in the company to be iterating. Not just the product team, not just the design or the engineering team, but everybody is responsible both for the employee experience as well as the customer experience. And often when your employee experience is bad, I can pretty much pinpoint how horrible your customer experience could be. I mean, we are a huge proponent of really both brand 
is the experience you deliver, but that's a, an experience for a customer, but also for the employee and kind of building business from the inside out. And it's great to hear that coming to Uber, you've been embraced and impressed with all of the people that are around you. You were talking a little bit about certainly the workforce and kind of this great reset. And I'd love for you, just because we're on that topic, to talk about Designed by Us and to talk about the notion of the new color workforce and what that means and what the implications are for for listeners who are at Fortune 500 companies around the world. You know, the new color workforce was actually something I identified many, many years ago when working at IBM. Again, the great Jenny Rometty, if you ever get a chance to work for a woman in tech, which is rare, ladies and gentlemen, we need to make it more. What you got access to was vision and the identification, early identification of problem areas. Ginny actually really began to suss out where we were going to have the future of work was evolving. Those changes accelerated during the pandemic, but the early outlines were pretty visible 10 years ago. We began to see that we were facing pretty unprecedented shortages then of skilled workers in the area of application development, technical design. And so what you saw was companies and educators talking about inclusivity and uh, equity around training your workforce. How do you reskill a workforce to new color? What's the new color? New colors, as we think about white color, we have blue color, the new color is the digital collar, right? Is is very much this pioneering way of being able to have both the, what I'd call steamed, S-T-E-A-M-D, not just STEM. That's still, you know, if you think of that, it's very much a old way of looking at it, but it's when you bring science, technology, engineering, arts, math, and design together into that workforce as core skills, retrain them, and you do that over time to reduce worker shortfalls. IBM, I have to say, was absolutely early in identifying that trend to actioning against it, right? Because they began to apply it to themselves. Yeah, I had the pleasure of knowing Phil Gilbert and a lot of the team that was responsible for, as you said, not just advancing the products and experiences that IBM was delivering to the world, but turning it inward and including designers on the HR team and designers across the organization to allow just a new way of of thinking and doing. And it's pretty fantastic when you really see applied in that thoughtful way. Phil took care of that internally. My job, right, as his peer, was to take that and commercialize it and take it externally to actually create a discipline where that became the services side, how we actually went to market with our customers like General Motors, like Citibank, like big financial institutions, Coca-Cola, you name it. And understanding that we said, okay, here's an evolution. So that happens. We expand our footprint, increase revenues. We actually see great growth. And what I would say is great organic, not uh, uncontrolled accelerated growth, but organic growth where everybody had ownership and everyone was a builder. You kept this as a builder mentality. So lo and behold, the coining the new phrase, new collar, but now post-pandemic, worker revolution has emerged, right? The demand is through the roof. 
we don't nearly have the policies in this country, and I would say in Europe either, on uh, immigration to actually bring in enough talent to meet the demands of our current labor market. We are way, it's way out of whack and it's way overdue. So, so much of the work that we are doing, because there is not a one size fits all solution when it comes to big macro problems, right? We need to bring more people in. It's mm-hmm. really that simple. Yeah. The levers there, the thing is clear. And that's true in tech, by the way. We're There's inflationary things happening in chip manufacturing, things like that. If we had had the talent here, we wouldn't be paying for the prices there. It would be an evened out growth. So if you look at it from that perspective, that's one aspect of it. Then you go to the second one, right? I think the second one's a a little bit more interesting, which is like where we are now and where we're going to be in the next 10 years, which is the investment in new pathways into large corporations. I think a decade ago, taking on student loan debt and things like that in terms of the high cost of education, right, wasn't, it hasn't been necessarily putting out the workforce that we need right? In, ter- in numbers. So how do you help do that? How do you help advance people who have the, the nascent interests? And so one of the pioneering paths to the new collar economy that designedbyus.org is working through is actually apprenticeship, creating a, an apprentice, a global apprentice program that aims to solve the advancement of technology and workers, right? Uh, needed to propel our businesses forward. The second one is in this very quickly iterating business landscape, you also need to be able to kind of predict what are the skills that are going to be useful in the next 10 years. And we do a lot of research around those emerging spaces. And then obviously the, the balancing kinesthetic learning, meaning that apprenticeship means that you are getting credit and acknowledgement for real world experience, right? And combining real-world experience with a little bit of classroom, it's an, or even in non-traditional boot camps, things like that, right? So there's a lot of different pathways into the education, but what the missing path was the entry into these jobs. So here we have all these boot camps, but a bunch of companies that weren't able to really accept in apprentices. I did some of this work early at IBM. I carried it over in my role at Amazon and bringing people through like the early apprentice pathways into UX design and research, both for software and hardware. And it is such a pleasure to be able to continue that work. We've got apprentices within the Uber sphere as well. So being able to both craft that, but also insist that more and more companies create this pathway for minorities and for majorities, right? Minorities and majorities alike to introduce them, get them on the job training and more acceptance of certifications to produce everything from entertainment to product experiences that educate, incubate, and truly invest in and equip anyone who identifies as a woman or a girl with that hands-on learning experience, they need to pursue the global workforce opportunities today. First of all, bravo. And to be kind of taking it with you as you continue to, to come into these different experiences. And it seems on one hand, the solution, you know, I mean, that's, that's a brilliant idea. And it's also about not 
doing what we've always done in terms of where we look, where we hire, who we hire, how we train them. And it feels like an obvious move. Why aren't all companies doing this, particularly given the issue of there's a need for that talent. There's a craving for that talent. Design and digital and all the things you're talking about truly not only have a seat at the table, but they're like, people are looking to them saying, what do we do, you know, to keep up and to transform? So where do you think the barrier is? You know, I think the barrier is actually sometimes comes from the tops down and not understanding that to solve the workforce and labor problems that we have, that there's not a silver bullet and you have to apply human-centric problem solving to get to multiple solutions that you will iterate on over time. Again, this is a problem that doesn't solve itself overnight. You've got to look the right leaders who are accepting of it, right? have their eye on the long haul and know that they're going to see if they don't make the investment in apprenticeship programs now into their companies, they're starting from ground zero. And a part of what Design by Us does in working with corporations is actually doing that upskilling. So if they don't have a program at all, right, we're doing the upskill and the cross-functional skill set training so that they are prepared for hybrid interview or part of interview processes and to even just get in the door. So one side of it is very focused on building our own uh, products and services. And actually, my goal is actually to see a young woman, two women in a basement and fund that mm-hmm. than just feed thing. But I think it's an all up, right? We look at it and say, hey, corporations, for those of you that don't have a program, come to us. We'll help you implement what that program should be, right? And right size it for your organization. That's what Design Bias does for the corporate side. For the job seeker side, what they're doing is actually getting to work on big systemic problems um, and launching new products and services that ultimately they will own as a part of a very different company set that is focused on employees as owners. And not just as speak, right? Like as a no, real that is concept. The model. Right. That's amazing. That is the model today, 100 percent of designed by us is owned by the employees and will always be that way. That's amazing. So I read you had spoken the kind of idea that the Earth's problems are businesses' problems, that they're inherently linked. And I think that there is definitely a a waking up to that. How does your team embrace that spirit every day? And what are some of the things that, you know, you've brought out into the market over your career that you feel kind of fit in that model? I think that's a a really good question in that I think it manifests itself, that belief manifests itself in varied ways. Let me just start with a quote, right? Earth's problems and business problems are inherently linked. We're seeing that amidst climate change. As we think about this, we are at a stage of climate change that we aren't playing a job of let's attempt to reverse it, although that is some of the work that needs to be done. The work in front of us, the serious work in front of us, is how do we create human resilience amidst an entanglement in a wilding world? That wilding earth isn't going to be unwild for the next 10 to 25 years. Hurricanes, all of these things, wildfires, we talk about higher temperatures, rising oceans. Why is that a business problem? Because 
when I talk to CEOs like the CEO or the president of John Deere, right, who is in farming and agriculture, he shares that every one of their customers is one climate event away from complete destitution. So what does that mean to your customer base? That means that they will not exist and will not be a revenue source if we don't act as a whole, understanding that the parts of the whole impact the business. It is a systemic approach to climate, right? It can't just be a business approach. It can't just be a consumerized approach. It can't just be an academic approach. It's actually bringing all of these factions together at a table to think about what are the behavior changes that we need to do? What are the products, the services that we need to re-envision? What are the things we have to full stop stop today? Yeah. Right? And how do we equip human beings to live in a wilding earth? Over the, you think about it, the span of their lifetime. We as communities, we the people as governments, and we the people as constituents of those governments and global citizens have to play a part. If you are so cynical that you're not playing a part, your community is at risk. There isn't one community at risk. Now, I will tell you, there are some communities that are at more risk, but every one of our communities is at risk. When I think about it, and it's, think about it like so dire, in my everyday role, I think about it as, will the next flood, okay, this is how it impacts business, if the next flood happens, it isn't that I'm going to be able to deliver more water or toilet paper. They're not going to have an address to deliver to. When you think about like Katrina-style storms and impacts that wipe away entire communities, that means your customer base goes away and therefore you have no more revenue. We have to deal with it. And so if you were only going to take the business approach, right, the old-fashioned capitalistic approach, which is in a wilding earth, there is money to be made in making humans more resilient to these changes. The more holistic approach, the human approach, right, the one that unites us with nature a little bit more, right, says that we cannot continue to work the way that we worked. And we actually, part of the future work connection, and whether we're hybrid and we're not, and you know who's commuting and who's not, start with climate and work backwards. Because I think that what we are not connecting the dots enough on in media narratives and business narratives is that the pandemic that we just survived, for those of us who were lucky enough to survive it, who were fortunate enough to survive it, right? There's one right behind it if we don't take, if we don't reverse the actions. And I think that is what's really clear for me in my daily work. And I apply it equally in all aspects of what I do, whether it is, you know, the more philanthropic world designed by us and really looking to create models that you share out, right? Because the sharing out of those models, you hope that somebody gets it right. But in my everyday, you look at it at the impact of how food and groceries and prepared foods are delivered and how your earner network is impacted by this ever-changing workforce change. It can be daunting, you know, when you begin to look at all of these things, but I also think you're bringing a voice of optimism to a certain extent of what how we can all play a role and, and certainly the role that businesses and the platforms that we're building have. Heather, what's the alternative, though? Put your political views aside for a second, is actually giving up, retreating, Right. Not taking on problems, saying, you know what, we're going to be protectionists because we can just protect what's on our shores. That's a 
BS notion. Everything is interconnected. Basic resources like water, oil, energy, these are things we take for granted every day. And so to think that those things don't have impact on us, right, and not to prepare for it is actually a very cynical way of believing that our best days have passed, as opposed to we can work together to get to a better tomorrow. Yeah. Wow. So you've been designing experiences all your life. And we talk about the interconnectivity of the brand being the experience. And the bar has, I think, been raised because of some of these great inventions and innovations that have come to market. In the purest sense, despite all the technology and the things that we can do, what do you think makes an amazing, magical brand experience? Anybody who says magic, it sounds easy. But if you have you ever talked to a magician? Ask them how much time they actually spend on the craft of creating a magic trick or an illusion. I happen to have had the pleasure of a, a friendship with David Copperfield. Amazing. The world's iconic magician, I would say aficionado of all things magic and history magic. And the thing that makes magic is work, hard work, willingness to fail. And so when I think about applying the answer to that, right, I think it's threefold. First, magical experiences raise the expectation of what is possible. And I think about that in a couple different ways. The expectation of what is possible, meaning, wow, yesterday it took me 10 minutes to do that. Tomorrow it took me 10 seconds. That's magic. And it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that it just accelerates. You've got to continue making the magic because people become addicted to magic. They're like, wait a minute. You <laughs> yes. just paid me back in time. That's a dividend in my life, which is the most valuable piece of currency for most people. The second part, right, is that the part that, and I really rely on Arthur C. Clarke as a point of inspiration and a total nerd. For those of you who don't know me, <laughs> I am a science fiction nerd, more on the Star Trek side that envisions a positive future rather than the dystopian Black Mirror side that says the best days are behind us, right? And so if you look at that envisioning the best days are in front of us, what science fiction often does for us and art does for us is actually imagines the what if. What if we could all work virtually, right, but actually feel and be able to touch and sense like we were in the same space? These are things that are important. What if you could bestow the gift of x-ray vision, right? Or even pre the ability to predict a future outcome. What if? And to me, being able to start with narratives, right? That says, answers what if with that bold statement of, if we do this, this, and this, we might be able to produce that outcome, right? And so magic is something that takes hard work, that become, in technology speak, right, is when we talk about things being indistinguishable for magic, right, it is has to be like, how did they do that, right? If your customers are going, how, I can pay for this in a tap without pulling out my phone, <laughs> right, without being distracted from driving or, right, for all of the things that are hurdles and pain points today, 
you can feel bits of pixie dust and that magic wand being waved every time you launch a solution that enhances somebody's life. I don't think sometimes this, I don't know that all technology makes it better, but enhances the way that we do things or fundamentally changes the way that we achieve a goal. Mm. Sign me up, right? Well, you <laughs> talked about magic and mistakes and making wow. mistakes are pretty interlinked. A part of growth is mistakes. Once a great leader once reminded me that growth and comfort, the fact that if you are growing and you're comfortable, you're probably not growing. So that growth and comfort are actually often incompatible with each other, right? In order for us to grow as human beings, as great designers, as wonderful creatives, as parents, you make mistakes. You can ask all four of my children, by the way. I got better with each one of them. But if you ask the first, what I what I knew now and what I knew then, until you actually apply the theory, right, you have to be looking to them. So I look to make mistakes every single day. I prepare myself for it. And they're okay. You can make mistakes in choosing the wrong job or the wrong organization. You can, Those are big. Sometimes we feel like they're big mistakes. Those are little mistakes. Because in reality, that's the thing that we should be focused on to focus in our families and the importance of surviving in a wilding earth. But, you know, when I think about some of their career, the everyday mistakes is sometimes forgetting to mention something, right? Forgetting yeah. to acknowledge somebody and asking, and first of all, sharing with my team when I've done it. Like, oh, crud. Or when somebody calls you out on something like, hey, you know, you really... You really looked at this the wrong way, right? Taking that moment of pause, thinking about it and coming back with, I heard you and you're right. I made a mistake and here's how we'll fix it, mm -hmm. right? Those are the kinds of things that I think that we as leaders, great leaders, do every day. We as humans are fallible. And if you're building a culture of continuous learning and iteration, and invention, you have to be humble enough to say, we are imperfect souls, and this is a journey. You don't show up to a job having every skill possible, but what you do show up is principled. Mm. Principled in a way to say, you know what, I've made financial mistakes in my lifetime. Here's how I corrected them, right? I've made planning mistakes. You look and say, yes, I've actually made design mistakes. All of those things, by admitting that, Great leaders demonstrate that even they still have a lot to learn. Well, as I said, you know, the idea of building a culture of learning and celebrating that, and there is something messy and beautiful about the whole thing, and it lends itself to, I think, pushing ourselves further, but it can be scary. And as you said, particularly in this culture where everything is curated, everything is perfect. Three generations of designers, your mom you, your daughter. It's in your blood. It's in your DNA. And and I guess just given what you've seen and what you've learned, like, tell me what that's been like and some advice out there for designers. There's already been a, a lot that you've shared, particularly the idea of got to love people and you've got to dig in. And I think collaboration is super important. But what has that been like? And what have you noticed kind of cross-generation that you could share? Mm, that's a great one. Well, one, we're all problem solvers. Mm -hmm. And we're all pretty hopeful people. I find that we are often unmistakably 
kinesthetic learners, we learn by doing. Most designers, every time I speak with them, you know, it's like there's a part of the design curriculum that is so good that is book. You study the history and then how do you apply that? Where I have found my love is in the application of that. I grew up in a design studio, interior design and architecture and construction studio that my mom ran. And I see that as an incredible, you know, I have very big, broad shoulders because she ran a business and she, you know, it wasn't like design was a separate business. Design was the business. That was the business. And so the financial model was you are paid for your design outcomes. I have found that the business acumen, to be a great designer, you have to have great business acumen. That's true in your corporate life. And as you grow, it becomes more and more important of understanding the heretofore of business, the drivers, your key performance indicators, and actually taking ownership with your product management and engineers with it. Part of its family, it's just, it was a privilege to have a mom, a working mom, who showed that it could be done. And not everybody has that. And so, so much of that recognition is built into the Pena Philanthropy and Designed by Us organization in that why is it important to see what you could be? Had I never seen it, I don't know that I would have seen this as a path, a doable path for myself. And my daughter's not seen it. We, by no stretch of the imagination, I was like, go do something else. (laughs) And they did, by the way. They did. They migrated back into the space of problem solving with their artistic knowledge, using art and science to bring forth new kinds of innovation. So I feel fortunate that that happened kind of by nature. What it proved to me was that you can talk all you want about design, but what people really learn from is observation and your actions and the impact of your actions. And so for us, kind of live in a design family. And so it's really, I'd say it's really tough that I'd say for the younger generation, often they see the successes and feel like the how part of it. And I have to remind them consistently as a parent and as a leader of an organization that you know what, you will get there or you'll get to a different place. Your success will not look like mine. It shouldn't look like mine. It should look like yours because the decisions I made were kind of indigenous to me. But that doesn't mean that's the right path for you. What I look to do is principally equip them, right, with the tools that they need and the belief system and the behaviors that they have to be successful and then give them the space to go figure it out themselves. And I believe that in my family life, and I really believe it in business. If you can't get out of the way of your people, that is where you will fail to innovate all the time. Such great advice. I could talk to you all day. There are so many topics that we want to get to, but I wanted to end with a question that I ask all the guests, which is first an acknowledgement first of the fact that you're an icon. I mean, you are iconic in the way that you think and the way that you work and the things that you've done and created and how lucky we all are to be able to even get a little bit of that today. So thank you so much. But the question is, who is your icon? Mm, My mom. Your mom. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you described why and I and I understand it was the model of being a leader and building something and creating something and working. And that's, of course, 
you know, trickled into you and all that you've done and now your daughter and your other children. So that's a good one. For me, first of all, thank you. It's such gratitude. It is so humbling to hear that, to be recognized that way. It only fuels my insistence on continuing the work in front of us because it means we're doing something right, right? The outcome of success isn't always fame. It certainly can be infamy, if depending on how you define success. But for me, success is human. It isn't always happiness. Happiness doesn't always equal success. <laughs> it is moments of reflection, trying to navigate, like finding fun in the journey. And for me, happiness and fun, sometimes you, you can be unhappy, but try to have a little bit of fun in that ha- unhappy path <laughs> to get your way into a happier place. Because I think it's unrealistic for people to think that, yes, we will always have a happy life. Um, I think that we are fortunate in this space, if you were a listener in the United States, that I've had the opportunity of traveling all over the world. And in those travels, a part of that observational learning that I do is being hands-on in cultures and asking questions and respecting other human beings and celebrating what's what makes us different as opposed to trying to make us all the same. That would be a really boring world. Yes. If you imagined a world that could not accommodate our cultural differences. I take a very pragmatic yet principled approach to both my life and accountability, right? It's a principled approach and then holding yourself accountable to your daily decisions on how it impacts your health, how it impacts your ability to earn a living, and how it impacts your community. Because ultimately, we do have to answer to our actions. For me, it is such a compliment, and I really appreciate it. But all of that comes from growing up in San Antonio, Texas, early days of having a single mom, and then that single mom picking a partner who was an amazing dad, and being able to have that father and mother figure in my life, and show me the balance. My father was an attorney, and for a time, he was a a public defender. And a part of that piece of it taught me public service and the importance of civic duty and to apply my skills as a individual, as a part of being a citizen of the United States meant that you didn't just contribute taxes, that civic meant that it was that everyday interaction that you have in your community to make it a better place, to ensure a better tomorrow, whether that's for your children or somebody else's. Well, that's an amazing way to end. Thank you so much, Joanna. And here's to living and working with integrity, to making mistakes, having some fun with it, and to the pursuit of magic. Thank you and look forward to seeing all the amazing things that you're going to do. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, share with your colleagues and friends and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling really generous, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.